you want to share a screen or you want to split? You want to split? You want to split screen or not? Oh, no, we're good. I like everybody to be able to see us. Okay. So, everybody, as you can see, Norman is with us. I am super excited to share with everybody this evening the story of how I found Norman online. And now he's here on the Jen Lowry Writes podcast show to talk about Samuel of the Nations, his other work, because it's not just one book for you, Norman. So we're going to talk about your collection of work, how this has all came to be, and just learn from you. The master of storytelling of how you have taken the lives, the enriching, fulfilling lives of those that have been before us and placed them in novel format, engaging just inspiring and so authentic. So I can't wait to hear how you're doing it. So guys, everybody <laughs> clap. Norman J. Letterman Moore, welcome to the show. Tell us more about you, Norman. Oh, well, I think my inspiration actually came um, when I was about eight years old. My uncle gave me a little book called Storyteller's Scrapbook. And uh, that little book uh, is, uh, a, I think it's still in publication today, or you can find it somewhere, Storyteller Scrapbook. I, I wrote it author. down. I wrote it and, down to uh, look. Uh, I, it has all of these uh, wonderful little principles about life and about how to live a decent life and a, a productive life. Anyway, I've had that all, all my years. And I, uh, my professional work is in strategic planning and economics. I was, uh, I was appointed um, chief planning and development by Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California. And uh, I was, uh, you know, I just had a wonderful career. And I had my own firm after Governor Brown came into California. <laughs> I knew it was time for me to move on. So I began my own firm and, and uh, did work in the United States and different parts of the world and uh, was uh, fascinating. I ended the firm uh, in 2010 and uh, kept working a little while and, uh, and going to meetings. People would call me to attend a meeting in Chicago or somewhere, in, uh, you know, New Orleans or whatever. And I said, well, that's going to be about the most expensive meeting you've had in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I love genealogy. Uh, my name is hyphenated for a reason. Oh, yes. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, the reason is that I was, born, I was born in a home for unwed mothers. And um, the doctor that delivered me was uh, Dr. Eleanor Rogerson, who was the first woman graduate uh, from Stanford University um, in medicine. And uh, she was given the assignment of working at this particular home for unwed mothers. My mother, uh, who was a teenage girl at the time, 18 years old, uh, was there pregnant with me. And I was to be adopted. Well, my grandmother stepped in and said no. This baby is coming home with us. And so on the Robertson side, that's my mother's side of the family, I was taken home. And from then I was raised and, and uh, eventually uh, discovered after a long, long search, a very difficult search, I discovered the Moors 
and I discovered uh, my family and my biological family. And so I went to work and started working on genealogy. And my mother had been very adamant about genealogy and its importance. And so I picked up on her uh, concepts of how to research and how to find things. So was this the day um, before Ancestry and the Leafs and all of the ways? Yeah. <laughs> way no, yeah. yeah, we were, we were pioneering, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or at least I felt like we were pioneering. And uh, no, it was all handwritten stuff and send letters and travel and, you know, and all that. But uh, uh, everything coming forward now to 2010, I, of course, had a computer. I had links and had all of the internet uh, capabilities but i i uh, was here working on uh the family uh, history and i came across this samuel saunders who had shown up in my research and i thought well who the heck is this guy you know <laughs> what's he all about because i didn't have any parents i didn't have his parents i I didn't have anything except some reference to a woman named Pashika. And so it was late at night. I remember it was it had to be close to midnight when I was doing this. And I thought, well, I better look into him. And so I started research. And three hours later, I thought, holy cow, <laughs> this guy's really interesting. And uh I had found him listed in a book uh, that I have on the most famous Jews in America. And uh, I found him related as a, it was said that he was like a son to Daniel Boone. Well, actually he was a very good friend of Daniel Boone. I found other things about the um, Native Americans and about the Wyandots and about um, uh, the Shawnee and the and the canada relationships and so i i couldn't sleep the rest of the night hardly i, I kept thinking about this guy and i kept thinking about i've really got to find out more so i went to work and i started researching and that went through a six-year process of researching um ended up with over 400 source documents um, a pamphlet I found out of the basement of Toronto University in Toronto. Uh, okay. A little pamphlet about the building of, of uh, Boone's Fort. And here is Samuel there with uh, Abraham Lincoln's father. Uh, <laughs> and they were friends and they were involved in that. And uh, anyway, it was just one thing after another, after another of all these documents. And a very dear friend of mine, who recently passed away, a uh, Jewish friend uh, uh, down in Southern California, Dr. Rabin. Uh, Jack Rabin uh, and I were talking one day and he got to researching and he said, well, you know, he, he, was, he was a Jew and, and he was a Sephardic Jew. And I said, really? <laughs> so that went on and uh, so finally I, I i looked at it all after six years of researching for genealogical purposes and i said i've got to write about this guy and uh i'd never written a book before I so i want to i've got to stop you because i just am trying to have this i'm imagining you in a basement 
finding a pamphlet. Okay, or are you finding one of 400 source documents? Like each find, describe that feeling of a find. It's, it's indescribable. Uh, I, I want to hear I, you try I, to put it into words because I feel some joy around this and I need to see how you can describe the find. I will use one word. And I've given that question a lot of thought. I'll use one word, and it's a word that applies to the entire writing of this book. Uh, that word is spiritual. It was a spiritual feeling of connection with people who lived their time, their lives, and had done what they had done, and been what they had been, and have gone on. And that in some small way, I was an inheritor of their footprints. Mm. Oh, it was I spiritual. That. I love that. And I, uh, when I was writing the book, uh, that gets to a point that I've, I've given a lot of consideration to. And when I was writing the book, I had events, I had actual events, uh, documented events, firsthand accounts, um, even terminology and recorded uh, blessings and, and uh, ceremonies and so forth with the Shawnee, uh, Chief Cornstalk and the wedding ceremony, so forth and so on. But when I would attempt to put words, that is the dialogue, with the events of the actual people, uh, such as Pashika and such as Samuel and such as uh, Adam Brown, uh, Chief Adam Brown, Adam Brown Jr.'s father. When I would try to put those words together, um, sometimes I felt like, no, no, it's not that, it's this. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like I was receiving a some kind of guidance, uh, some kind of uh, correction, gentle correction. Uh, Holy that, Spirit nudgings. Yeah. So I, I, I think, I think the only word I could apply to your question, Jennifer, is um, yeah, spiritual. It, it definitely was there. And so, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And my wife at the time, uh, she had Alzheimer's. Oh. Oh, for about 10 years, I was her caregiver, and um, she passed away Absolutely. Oh, in, in uh, 2020 on, on July 7th. Um, anyway, she, she would ask me, how much are you going to write about Samuel? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I said, I, I just feel like I need to keep writing, you know, until I find the end of his life. Um and of course, I did find that. And I found Nancy and I found Quindaro, his granddaughter. I found, um, you know, the other children and and Mary Starr, of course, who I'm related to Samuel through her. So and, I'm pointing, yeah. I'm pointing, everybody, if you're if you're on Spotify listening or, or listening on the podcast, you can't see the point. So I'm just letting you know I'm pointing because that's how we're related to <laughs> <laughs> so I'm pointing. Anyway, uh, yeah, we're related. Found out. 
But I, I, I wasn't writing to write a book. That was the point of it. I, ah. I was writing. I was writing to document this man's life and all of the things that went on in his life. And so, anytime I could place him geographically and from a time perspective, uh, and from an event perspective in a historical setting, whether it be in Virginia or whether it be in Canada or whether it be in Ohio or wherever it might be, uh, then I would I would search that area, and then sure enough, again I would find him. You know, he was he was a mentor, teacher, and interpreter and translator for Chukumsha. He was uh, he was behind the scenes in some of the most famous treaties or infamous treaties yeah. with Native Americans that has ever been created, Sycamore Shoals. Um, for example, and and some of the other um, uh, uh, treaties uh, which um, brought all of the nations together and, and trying to get some understanding as to how the white man and the Native Americans would be able to live in the future. Um, and that's when I discovered that, and I use it quite often from a historical perspective, I ask the question to people, why did the six Native, uh, six nations, excuse me, um, go with the British in the Revolutionary War? And nobody could really answer that question. And I said, well, let me tell you what I think is a plausible answer, because it's historically true. That Chief Cornstalk was murdered. Chief Cornstalk was most beloved, honest, famous, um, gracious chief of the Iroquois or the Shawnee that ever lived. And he was uh, murdered at Fort Randolph. And I, I, when I found that, when I found that, that history, and I found that the runners from the nation went out all the way to the Mississippi, to the, uh, the reaches of up in, in um, what we now know as Maine, to Florida, to Mississippi, and, and, and on, to tell the other nations, Cornstalk was murdered. And he was murdered defenseless. He was murdered uh, coming there honestly, just to simply try to talk the Americans um, in charge to release his two warriors who had been incarcerated so that they could come home and go hunting and feed their families. And that's the only reason he was there. Mm. And he was advised by his sub-chiefs and others, no, no, you need to you need to take weapons. You can't trust these people. He said no. And his wife went with him. His uh, um, A lot of other people went with him, and a few of them were killed as well. As the two warriors that he he came to Fort Randolph to try to try to save. Anyway, when I uh, when I found these things and I and I saw them, I then I it it began to impress upon me the importance of trying to write it into a novel. Again, I've never written a book before. I've done a lot of writing. I've done a lot of technical writing, report writing, and things of that nature, both in this country and Portugal and Spain and England and and elsewhere. But uh, I, um, 
I had not written a book. And had so you, had you investigated like other historical um, writings too, though, outside of that, how it would be put in narrative form? Did you have anything to go on or was it that spiritual experience of I'm just going to write this thing and how it comes to me? No, I said, I said, I need to educate myself on what it means to be an author. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. You know, I, and what did that because, look like for you? Because so that well, is what it looked like is the first thing to do is buy the Chicago rules. <laughs> yes, Scott, the big giant Chicago yeah, the, manual of style. Yeah, the big one. So it's in the cabinet back there, sitting there. I purchased shelf. the Chicago rules, and then I did something else. I thought back on a couple that my grandparents had uh, had me stay with uh, for a little short time. They had no children. They treated me like a little prince. And um, they would read every evening. They were uh, they were from the old world. My grandparents had helped them get into the United States, and they were from Croatia. Um, and just just lovely people. And uh, every evening, they would bring out one of the classics, uh, writing Moby Dick. Um, oh gosh, I have them all up here. I in the library here in, in the office, I, all of these wonderful classic, um, you know, all the Dickens works, uh, uh, Fenimore Cooper, uh, it, it just went on and on. And I thought, you know, in order to educate myself a little bit about writing, I better read what writers really write about. <laughs> and so I, I read, I started rereading a lot of these books. And I can remember when I was a teenager, when I was with, uh, Alpha and, and uh, Alan, um, that that's what we would do. Uh, we would in the evenings we would read. I was a freshman in high school at the time, and <laughs> that really helped me understand uh, the nature of writing more than anything else, and most importantly, how to communicate a thought, how to communicate a an emotion, how to communicate a circumstance and how to prepare the reader for something that's going to come a little bit later on, and how to make a transition chapter to chapter in sort of that the, the story is not broken, but the subject magnifies or changes or grows, uh, whatever the case may be. And so that's that was it. <laughs> I mean, that was the that's what I did. And uh, then I began to write. And then I, I, going back to Dr. Rabin, um, who was in uh, General Patton's army, by the way. He was a medic uh, in World War II, Battle of the Bulge and all that. Uh, and a great reader and an, an incredibly intelligent man and had a library to die for. I mean, he, he had some of the most rare books you would ever want to ever find. But anyway, I would send manuscript to him. Oh, look at you. You were doing the I, whole beta I, reader before you probably knew it was yes, called the beta I did. reader. And I said, Jack, I, I said, do you feel like reading this? Oh, yes, 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 wow. yes, yes, I'll read it. And so he did. And he, he would talk, he'd be blunt about it. Well, I think you need to do this. I think you need to do this. And so that's how that all came together. But six years of research, another two and a half years of writing. And we had Samuel of the Nations looking for a self-publisher um, because <laughs> I, that's another part of it that I didn't understand the business, you know, the, the business of publishing. And so after a little frustration with that, I thought, well, 
I'll just self-publish. And so I found Friesen Press over in Victoria, British Columbia, which isn't too far away from where I live. And um, although I'm in the United States, I want to make that clear. <laughs> but um, anyway, so I went over there uh, and took the ferry and, and the car went over there, met with them. And they said, yeah, we'd, we'll work with you on this. So there it is. And, and I, not... I have to say uh, that the history that's in there, that's included in there is factual as close as I can possibly get it, because I did a lot of traveling. Um, I remember being in conversation with the, um, well, she was the, wish I could remember her name right offhand, I don't, but she was the executive secretary or leader of the um, British Maritime Association in London. And uh, talking with her and I, I said, you know, I. I'm I'm coming across this Dr. Denman and this particular ship that my ancestor was on. And she said, oh, I did my master's thesis on that. <laughs> That's a God thing right there. That's how God lines people up in our path. You have, exactly. this, you have exactly. this mission. You've inherited their footprints and the Lord's going to help it all. <laughs> Figure it all out. <laughs> So she and I had a lot of fun with that, and and I said, I said, oh my goodness, here, you know, here's Samuel being put on board this military ship, uh, sent to the uh, colonies, never to return to England, never, and um, and here he meets Dr. Denman, and Dr. Denman became, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Dr. Denman became the uh, royal family's uh, surgeon aboard the Britannia. <laughs> It was, and it's amazing. And he he invented uh, something to help women with small pelvis uh, to be able to survive birthing. Mm -hmm. It was it was just incredible some of the work that he did. And of course the other, <laughs> so that helped Samuel, especially when they arrived in Virginia. Um, he was then absolved of his uh, problem with clipping coins. Um, you know, to help feed his family. Right. <laughs> and these and other guys. Passage. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. These other guys. Now, these guys knew that he was. Uh, um, well, anyway. So it, it there were things like that that happened time and time again that I just was just amazed by. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I feel close to him in a lot of ways. Uh, the person that helped me with, with the imagery on the cover um i i said this is how that uniform on the cover by the way is an exact uniform that he wore that's not a made-up uniform that's that is a uniform of a lieutenant in the indian department of the british army and uh his horse and uh and him, I, I tried to capture what I felt he might be yeah. um, in that imagery. And the woman who did the work for me, um, uh, Robin Beatles, um, just did, I thought, a marvelous job of, of putting that image together. But um, <clears throat> I do have also the book, um, Pindaro, his granddaughter, one of the most famous uh, Native American women in the world, in the United States anyway, that... <clears throat> worked on the uh, Underground Railroad. 
on the Missouri River, uh, the town of Quindaro, the ghost town that I'm sure you must be familiar with, uh, on that has recently received uh, national status, by the way. Um, Quindaro is quite a woman. And I, I'm about three or four chapters into her book as well. But I'm doing a lot more research because I wanted to find family. I wanted to find people who were related to Quindaro and actual descendants who are in Oklahoma because of the second Trail of Tears out of the Ohio, the Sandusky, and coming into Oklahoma. Uh, <clears throat> and um, Quindaro's husband, who was the first... Um, leader, um, if you will, governor of the Kansas Territory, appointed by the president uh, at that time. Um, her work is just, her humanitarian work is, is just something to behold. And I think she carries the spirit of Samuel as well. When you read about Samuel, the things that he did, the kind of things that he did to help uh, Native Americans, um, from the time he was, uh, quote, baptized into the uh, Native American nation, uh, the Shawnee nation, uh, adopted, if you will, uh, through that literal ordinance of, uh, very sacred ordinance of the Shawnee people. Um, yeah, he, he did a lot of things, uh, a lot of interesting things related to not only our nation, but others. He, he um, worked as little time as a surveyor. He <laughs> was on some of the great campaigns in the Ohio River and down the Mississippi and uh, up into Canada. Then he spent some time in the Caribbean. Uh, yeah. So now her, the granddaughter, and you have other work. Yes, I. Uh... And I'm thinking all of this research and how much. You pour into this. Well, uh, the, the same thing happened with uh, Jaded Horses. Uh, that's the second novel. Uh, Jaded Horses, I discovered in my Moore family in Tennessee um, that there's all this um, things going on with Mexico. And uh, there was uh, uh, Manifest Destiny, a lot of other things going on politically and economically in the country and the movement westward and so forth. And so the uh, Mexican-American War uh, took interest. And I discovered the cousins, the Moore cousins that got together. And of course, they were young kids thinking they were <clears throat> um, in, infallible. They, <laughs> they, were, they could do anything. Uh, and it's about their relationship with their horses and getting to the war, the war itself, and then getting home. And there's sort of a love story involved there, too, that I discovered <clears throat> in terms of the marriage of uh, one of the older uh, cousins. Um, but I just really enjoyed that. And here again, that word spiritual comes in mind because I was struggling to try to find um, documentation. I wanted absolute documentation everywhere I could find it. And I happened to be rifling through the... Smithsonian documents in Washington, D.C., and um, came across a reference to a certain colonel who happened to be the colonel in charge of the regiment in which these boys were 
And this guy, I guess he was homesick, this colonel, because he wrote letters every day to his wife. Aww. And and somebody, a grand, a great, great uh, nephew or somebody had retained these letters and they had been digitized and put into Smithsonian. And so when I was able to draw these letters back into my environment, um, here I had day by day, hour by hour account of everything that went on in which Cameron and these other kids were in that war. <laughs> the, voila, here we go, you know? And so again, it became a matter of um, putting words to events, di the dialogue. And I began to think on that again and again and again. And as I was writing, and the same thing would happen. It would happen, no, no, that's, that's not quite right. <laughs> <laughs> Move over a little here. Yeah, a little. Well, this is what happened. And I, oh, okay. <laughs> Rewrite that. But uh, yeah, jaded horses. Um, it's in three basic elements of the book: um, the war, getting to the war, which was a huge effort. The war itself, and the devastation of war. And in that regard, I found something that I thought was very special. I found a document that refers to a young woman who's Mexican. Her husband had been killed. She was in her 20s. The generals were arguing at a peace table in Monterey about the surrender of the Mexican army. And they were contesting with one another and, you know, sword rattling and going on and on. And it did not look good. This girl walked into that war room with these generals all arguing with each other and said a certain thing. I don't have the book in front of me, but I, it's, it's an actual recording of her words. Said certain words that brought peace and understanding to the warring sides to allow the Mexicans and the Mexican army at that time to <clears throat> withdraw with dignity. In other words, to be able to walk away from the battlefield with dignity without anybody else being killed or hurt. And there was a horrible number of bad things that went on perpetrated by both Mexicans and, and Yankees or Americans in that war. And uh, I documented that as well and wrote that into the script, uh, wrote that into the dialogue. And and uh, Cameron, the main character there, it was, uh, it was obvious what his role was, you know, as a fighter. But he also had been given a charge by his father before he left the plantation in Tennessee. And that is that uh, he's to be honorable in terms of his fighting. When he has an enemy subdued, he's to be kind and to be have charity in his heart is the word that I could use. Um, and he did. And he came home with honor. Um, and so it's, it's quite a story. Uh, the Moore family goes right back to the revolution, of course. <clears throat> a lot of people talk about the and of course, it's part of history about the Minutemen and, and the first shot fired, heard around the world, on and on and on. Well, 
actually the first shot fired was at the Moore Creek in North Carolina. Yes, sure was. <laughs> studied that Creek. one. Studied that <laughs> one last semester with Moss. You have that one, huh? Okay. Yes, got that one. Well, they ambushed a British patrol uh, right there at Moore Creek near the Moore Farm, and uh, yeah, North Carolina. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, I enjoyed that. And then I, I went on, um, and my, my most recent book, um, All But One, that, uh, that book uh, tugs at my heart um, more than anything else uh, about the Putman family um, related to the Moors, um, my ancestral Moors. And uh, Texas, Texas Revolution, uh, the children who were abducted by Comanche, and the father's search for his children for over 20 years. Hmm. I don't know if you've seen that book or not, but... No, I have not. Not that one. Hang on just a minute. I'll just show you the cover. I am so glad you guys have joined me this evening. I am absolutely loving our conversation and hearing all about yeah. how Norman, all, all but one, how Norman has taken pieces of history, genealogy, golden nugget finds, and allowed them to tell their stories really that's what it that's what it all boils down to you've just given them a place and they're just continuing to tell their stories well um the last paragraph of all but one the front door opened wide allowing a gaggle of children and gonzalez folk to fill the room. In an instant, we were smothered by children and three dogs who beelined for the kitchen. Last to enter were Sarah Elizabeth and Judith Lucy, locked arm in arm, talking in whispers as sisters who love each other normally do at peace with themselves and the world. Ah, oh, Norman. Now these are the two sisters. The one had been gone for oh, over 20 years. They'd been little sisters together when they were very young, in their five, six-year-old, seven-year-old. And one recognized the other and that's the name of the chapter in the last chapter is titled Sister, Oh Sister. When they recognize each other there in Gonzales, Texas. Anyway, this this uh, book, uh, Gonzales, uh, about all but one, is, I think it's an account of learning that wonderful principle um how should i put it um that wonderful principle that um well i was just talking about this uh, just today with somebody else 
where somebody said, I have learned that not shrinking is more important than surviving. Not shrinking from duty, not shrinking from responsibility, not shrinking from what God has placed before us. The challenges is more important than merely surviving. Because it tells the character of who and what we are, really. And that's, this book, All But One, um, tries to, in my feeble way, um, capture that principle. Through the women, um, the men of Texas who went through horrible, horrible times um, beyond our imagination um, during that revolution and after, and then to have their children abducted. <laughs> the mother, Rebecca, literally died of a broken heart when her children were gone. But anyway, that's that's all but one. And now I'm into uh, a book, I'm uh, in chapter 11 um, of 13 chapters in a book called Where Pelicans Fly. Yeah, it's a story another, based, is this yeah, another a, one based on ancestry? Yeah, and there's one other called um, that I'm working on with more research. We're related um, to these people. They're called the Chapman Chapman family, and um, it's called the Eighth Heaven, and it's a, a true account of uh, Thomas Chapman who came with Sir Thomas Dale. Uh, who was commissioned by uh, Prince Henry um, to save Jamestown, the Jamestown adventure or, or mm. business venture. And uh, Thomas Chapman came. He was married at St. Mary's uh, Cathedral in London um, to his wife. Um, but she was underage at the time, and the marriage could not be consummated. And she went back to Christ hospital orphanage in uh, England, where she was, um, along with her sister. And um, he came with Sir Thomas Dale with the flotilla of three ships uh, that came to save Jamestown stage. She joined him six years later. And <clears throat> they had marvelous uh, plantations and, and uh, agriculture and and of course, it's the eighth heaven. The eighth heaven comes out of a document that I've discovered where he had met in a journal. It, it's recorded that he had met an old Jewish sailor who had been on another ship. And, and on that other ship, this Jewish fellow uh, had mentioned that he had learned that there was a sect in ancient Israel uh, of rabbis who made it their dedicated work to try to discover where God lived. And it's interesting that they uh, refer to themselves as the sect of Kolob. And, and Kolob has some reference uh, biblically in, in terms of the domain of God or where God lives. And, and um, so Thomas Chapman refers to that as the eighth heaven. 
And that's where he would like to have his family be <laughs> sometime after this mortal experience. But anyway, I'm I'm working on that one. It's, wow. Uh, Multiple it's, books at once. Aren't you an yeah. author now, Norman? Let us say. <laughs> Aren't you? Uh, I'm, actually, I'm just having fun. Oh, I, I think so. A lot of fun. Um, and and sometimes, I, I have to tell you, though, sometimes I will sit and I will just, tears will come to my eyes and I just sit here and just marvel at these people. And it's like going back to Samuel, you know, uh, uh, when I reread Samuel sometimes or I draw excerpts from the book, I thought, my goodness, you know, you know, Pashika's death uh, was so unnecessary, so unnecessary. Chief Maluntha out there pleading, holding the American flag, pleading for his life in that village in Ohio in Sandusky, the lower Sandusky. Oh, it's it's uh, it's humbling, uh, really, to be involved in this kind of writing. I I'm not a good. Um, I mean, I can create a story, I suppose, but I'm not a, uh, a a fictional kind of Star Wars kind of person. I but I you've not. always had the storyteller scrapbook, and that there one was go. embedded there in you your go. heart, That's right it. there. I, yep, it all right. started right there. Right, Jenny. I mean, I I come back to that again and again and again, where storyteller scrapbook was the beginning when I was eight years old. But when you say it, it's humbling. And you do have those moments when you're brought to tears. I believe that that's why you have been gifted with this ability to tap into these sources, to be able to continue these stories, as you say, inherited their footprints. Because it's a, it's a person as you that can take on a task like that and try as much as we can to capture the spirit and the heart to flesh and bone and, a, and, a, and attach it to somebody who once was but still is through the written word, through us, through generations, they still are. You know, you, you use the word capture. <clears throat> Excuse me, that, that's so important. I, when I wrote All But One, I began to realize that in order to capture the the nature of their conversation with each other, I had to go to the dialect of the English language that they use. And so what I did is I began to research that and I found there are over 25 dialects of the English language in the United States, the continental United States. And I began to realize that these people were all of the Southern Appalachia dialect. And <clears throat> when I realized that, I began to say, okay, what's the language they use? It's different than what I use. It's, it's far different in a lot of ways. And when I discovered that, because it has meaning, it has context, it has inference, it has uh, application that people instantly take into their hearts as an un, uh, element of understanding mm -hmm. and, and it's so personal I, and it's personal it's personal very personal and and so that's what i i did i i brought the um 
Southern Appalachia dialect of the English language into all but one. And I, I've been criticized for it. I, I was amazed when some, <clears throat> some uh, critique reader, I don't know, Goodreads or somebody like that said, well, it's, it's bothersome to read because of the way the language is, you know? And I thought, wait a minute, that's how people talked. <laughs> <laughs> and and but anyway and you're not going back in and editing it to it <laughs> no, not even a t no, you, you, you keep not, it authentic and you keep it in line to honor exactly. their their way exactly i i want it their way because it is their way way it's their way exactly and i'm just the interpreter the translator if you yes will. love it well, I want to tell you, Norman, I have thoroughly enjoyed our time together. I hope this is not a one and done for us, that you will be able to be back on the show in the future to talk more about writing. Yeah. And um, I would love to introduce you to my children so you can absolutely um, meet my boys. Um, absolutely. Just absolutely just have love this time. Uh, one last piece of wisdom that you can impart on those out who are seeking to write stories, whether nonfiction, fiction, what's a piece of wisdom you would like to share with our authors out there listening? I, I, I think the one thought that repeatedly comes back to me is that when we write about real people, real events, um, that we are writing about we're writing about God's children. And the integrity and the sanctity of that is a responsibility we take upon ourselves if we dare write at all. Love it. So I would think that be respectful. Be be understanding that these people are just on the other side of the veil. There are ancestors, there are, are people of times past and their lives as we would wish for our own should be, must be, will be respected. Love. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us this evening for the podcast. Truly have loved having you here, Norman. Samuel of the Nations is out where books are sold, along with all but one. And you have your jaded horses. And now you have other books out in the works. So we have definitely got to continue to follow Norman on his path of telling stories of the past and and making them into our homes today. So thank you so much, Norman. And I hope you have a blessed and wonderful evening. Guys, thank you so much for joining us here at Jen Lowry Writes.